Amen. How's it going, Redeemer? Good morning. My name is Jesse. I'm the pastor of Care and Connect here, and I am glad to be here. It's one of those weeks that was busy, um, and a lot of reminders just how how wonderful it is to really come and gather together. So, thanks for being here. Um, We're going to be moving on today in Titus chapter 2. We're actually going to go to uh, 11, verses 11 through 15, then we'll go back to 4, verses 4 through 8, when Chris preaches again next week. Um, So, a few years back, I was watching this live stream Thing, you know, everything's live streamed these days, where a few better-known pastors were getting together and they were debating differences about doctrine and theology. And at the end of almost every single one of their discussions, they said something along the lines of, well, we have, fill in the blank, so many thousands of people coming, so I guess we're doing something right. When I was first introduced to the idea of church planning, now seven years ago, Back before Redeemer started, I didn't realize how much of this thought process had actually been ingrained inside of me. I had a very immature idea of what church growth meant. I equated real growth to numerical categories. In my head, I was like, man, if we can first just get to 100, that would be great. 100 people coming in the doors. Then 150. Then 250. Go to two gatherings. Get a building, and maybe even a bigger space later, maybe three gatherings, maybe four. Looking back on this, that thought process should not have been a surprise to me at all, because we are conditioned to think along these terms, more, better, growth equals more numbers. It would be foolish for us to think that this has not crept into our thought life in our churches. There's the idea that more people in our doors on a Sunday morning equates to real growth of the church. More people, more programs, more parking lot spaces filled. That's the litmus test. And there have been multiple conferences and books published and articles that say, hey, here's how you can attract people to come into your doors. If we can just offer the right stuff, people will come, we'll have growth. And there's a reality That organizational growth, to an extent, is absolutely good, but it becomes dangerous if we believe that numbers equal real growth. True growth is primarily not quantitative, but qualitative. So today, as we move forward to verses 11 through 15 of chapter 8, we're going to see how living lives in light of the gospel and abiding in Christ and being obedient to him leads to true church growth, why that is important that we are actually growing in that way as ordinary followers of Christ, faithfully responding to the gospel, what God has done for us in Jesus and being obedient to him is how real growth in the church occurs as we go about our day-to-day lives. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to be reading... From Titus chapter 2, that's on page 998, I believe, of the Bibles in your row. If you don't have one, we have Bibles out front for you to take. Please grab one on your way out. We'd love for you to have that. Titus 2.11. 
It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we're thankful again just for this day um, that you've brought every single one of us together in this room to worship you, to praise you in song, to encourage one another, to hear from your word, and later to see a baptism. Lord, we're thankful for everything that we get to do today. And I just pray that we would, we would learn what it means to really grow in the gospel, what it means to abide in the love of Jesus Christ, what it means to be obedient to him as we're moved by that love. And I pray, Father God, that you would just work amongst us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So Paul has just finished in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, giving us a picture of what it means to follow Jesus in the ordinary moments of life. Next week, we're going to get to the middle portion of what, of what that what that means in the home and in some other instances. And last week we talked about faithfulness and glorifying God in our work and that it's important. Chad did a wonderful job of showing us how living our lives as Christians is meant to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in our work and in every moment of our life. Paul now moves on from the behavioral instructions to the church, to the actual theological basis for why these instructions are in place. And also, he's going to show us what all these practical instructions are actually intended to accomplish. The first word of verse 11 is really important because it shows us that what follows is the important sound doctrine that we were introduced to in verse 1 of chapter 2, where it says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Then he goes into the practical explanation, and then he gets to, for the grace of God. He's telling us now what it is that our growth and the ability to follow these commands comes from. He's going to get into the doctrine of what we are called to follow in order to live practical lives glorifying God. Our growth as followers of Christ comes from being rooted in the gospel, the good news of Jesus in understanding the proper reality that we live in each and every day. Verse 11, look at that again. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. First, we have to recognize, before anything else, that what we have been given is all an act of grace. There is no growth, no growth in the church apart from God's grace. The grace of God that has appeared here is Jesus himself. The noun for the word appeared in the original language of this letter is epiphania. And it means, it, it means of a coming in, into view of something that was previously concealed. It's used a lot to describe daybreak, when the sun rises over the horizon, 
That's the epiphany. That's the appearance of the Son. And it's not that God's grace hadn't been present up until the moment of Christ's coming. In fact, from the very, very beginning of time, from creation all the way to redemption, God's grace was there. God set in motion a plan of redemption as soon as sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. Throughout all the Old Testament, God's grace was there. Not one moment, not one moment existed apart from God graciously allowing it to happen. Humanity, creation, deserved none of it. What Paul means is that God's grace was fully revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and God's grace appeared visibly in Christ. From his lowly birth, to his obedient life, to his death on the cross for our sins, to his resurrection. And this grace has brought salvation for all people. What that means is that salvation was no longer just for the Jewish people. But in fact, it was for anyone. Jew, Greek, man, woman, old, young, master, bondservant, Hoosier, boiler maker, any nationality, any ethnicity, doesn't matter. Absolutely everyone now has the ability to respond to what Jesus has done and receive the salvation he offers. And all of this is because of the epiphany, the appearing of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And it is by this grace that we actually experience true church growth. True growth happens in two ways. One, by people responding to this good news of Jesus Christ, repenting of their sins and seeing that they cannot do enough on their own to be righteous and responding in faith to the salvation that Christ accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. And there is a continual growth The second part of that growth in maturity as followers of Christ are sanctified, are made more and more like Christ and look more and more like Jesus in their lives. That is growth in depth. So there is numerical growth as people come to Christ. There's also growth in depth, depth of relationship with Jesus and also with one another in the church, the body of Christ. All aspects of true growth are a product of grace. And they flow out from what has already been accomplished for us. It's never the other way around. Growth happens by grace alone. Growth also has a purpose. It would be weird for me to get up here and just talk about growing and then not give you a picture of what it is we're growing to. Because if we pause for a minute and we think about growth, there is always purpose. We grow physically so we can do more physical things. We work out so we can improve our physical capacity. We grow financially so we can have some more freedom to do certain things with finances. We grow intellectually or in our skills so that we can be better at whatever it is we are trying to do or learn or teach. But what is the purpose of true church growth? We find it 
in verse 13 of our section today, if you look there, it says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We look forward to a time when Jesus will come back and make everything new. All creation, all history is moving to a point where everybody will see that Jesus is Lord. At the end of time, Christ is going to come back. And the same word used for grace appearing is used here, talking about how Christ will come back and appear in glory. And at that time, the church, the capital C church, the global church, will be completed and spend eternity glorifying God. Ephesians 1, 13-14 says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's where the church is going. Growth in the church is happening so that all will be done to the praise of Christ's glory. And in turn, we will have joy unimaginable as we gain the inheritance that Christ was given from his Father, God the Father. We inherit that as well. True church growth has a purpose. Its purpose is to become, the church's purpose is to become a people for his own possession. Verse 14. Look at this picture we have in Revelation 5 of where we're headed. I love this chunk of scripture. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voices of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. That's the picture. That's where the growth of the church is heading to, right there. And we can spend all day trying to unpack what Revelation is exactly saying, but the reality is we know that people from every tribe and every tongue and every language and nation and people will be there glorifying God forever and ever if they have put their faith in what Jesus has done for them. The passage in Titus today gives us the bookends of the reality that we live in. Jesus Christ has come, and the grace of God has appeared. That has happened. And one day, the glory of God, our Savior, and Jesus Christ, will appear again. John Stott, in his commentary on Titus, says this, In Jesus Christ, there has been an epiphany of God's grace. 
And there is going to be an epiphany of his glory. We need both to look back and remember the epiphany of grace, whose purpose was to redeem us from all evil and to purify for God a people of his own. And also to look forward and anticipate the epiphany of glory, whose purpose will be to perfect at his second coming the salvation he began at his first. Every day, Christian, when you wake up, you can remember that Christ has died, he has risen, and he's going to come again. Paul, in this tiny little paragraph, in a few verses, is reminding us to always look back and be reminded that everything we have is because of grace And to also always look forward to the glory that is coming when Christ will appear and perfects his creation once again. True church growth starts there and it finishes there with a real purpose. True church growth comes in people recognizing that they are sinners in need of salvation. And salvation can only come through responding in faith to the grace found in Jesus Christ. Numerical growth is great as long as it is coming through people responding to the gospel. Our goal here at Redeemer Community Church should not be to just be the cool place on the block, it's tempting. It's tempting. Our goal always should be to want to have people hear and see in our lives and know and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. The world has a lot of pain and a lot of hurt. And the only remedy, the only remedy is the gospel. Growth comes by grace alone and responding to that grace in repentance and faith. We need to encourage one another daily to abide in that good news, to breathe it, to taste and see that it's good, and to share it with others. We need to continue to also share it with one another, not just those who don't know it yet. But this is not the only aspect of church growth. People coming and knowing Christ. That's not the only aspect of growth. True church growth involves a lifelong process after coming, after coming to Christ of being sanctified and growing deeper and deeper in our relationship with Jesus and with one another. Look again at verse 11 and 12. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Growth starts by becoming a follower of Christ. Church growth happens as people are redeemed, but then starts the process of growth. Growth in Christ-likeness. Ephesians 4, 15-16 says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way to him who is the head, and to Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul in Ephesians gives us just a wonderful, beautiful picture of how the body of Christ is to continue to grow. 
He had just finished explaining how every person has been given gifts. No matter what your gift is, you've been given that to equip, to, to love, and to serve one another so that the whole body can grow to full maturity. As history moves toward the time when Christ will come back and his glory will appear, true church growth is happening as the body of Christ, all members of the church globally, are being sanctified by the Spirit and growing in Christ and empowering one another to love Jesus and glorify him. Salvation and the church growth that comes from that doesn't stop at redemption. It always moves on to sanctification. One commentator put it like this, there's no salvation apart from discipleship. There is following Christ and learning more and more what it means to follow him. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Notice how after both the appearing of grace and the appearing of glory, there's practical portions of what it means to understand this grace and glory. There's a process of purification of the people of God. A process of God purifying people for his own possession. And what does it say is the sign of these people? They're zealous for good works. And what does the grace of God appearing do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. In this present age, the time between the bookends, the church continues to grow as we're sanctified individually and corporately. There are two things to notice here about what this grace produces practically. First, we see that we are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. In our flesh, we're weak, and we're tempted by a whole range of worldly desires. Think of your life right now. There are temptations that you're facing, sins that you're struggling with. I have these. As I was going through this, just... Numerous amounts of things were coming to my mind. We are called in Christ to put off our old self and recognize our identity in Jesus. He's freed us from sinning. It is our own sinfulness that makes it seem like our way is better and we can take advantage of the salvation offered. But the reality is that the gracious salvation didn't just make good works, and righteous living possible, it actually makes it a necessity. Verse 14 shows us that the church is becoming a purified people. Now right away as we get into these put-offs, there's a temptation to feel guilty. You may be sitting there right now feeling shame and guilt for the sin in your life. If you're in Christ, though, you don't need to feel that at all. Christ came to release you from your guilt. He bore your sins so that your guilt might be taken away. 
He was shamed for you so you don't have to live in your shame. He has given you his garments of salvation and his robe of righteousness, it says in Isaiah 61. The enemy, Satan would love for you to sit there today and wallow in that and just say, oh my gosh, I can't do it, I'm lost. But Christ says there's no need, he's paid for that. What we need to do is recognize that the shame and guilt can be used in a gracious way. God can use that in a gracious way to produce repentance and trust in the grace he's offered us. He has not only accomplished our salvation that leads on to sanctification, but he has given us one another to encourage and to build one another up. We're called to put off ungodliness, put on self-control, put on godly lives, put off worldly passions, put on Christ. And we're given the grace to do so, and we have to fight every day with with ourselves, with one another, to apply the gospel, to remind each other that one day we won't have to struggle anymore. And that is good news, but the good news also extends to today and tomorrow. Paul is dealing with false teachers here in Titus who profess to know God but deny him by their works. In chapter 1, verse 16, we walked through this. And it's important contextual information to remember. Paul is telling the Christians on Crete that evidence and fruit from a truly changed life will produce works that show they have been actually changed by the good news of Christ. God's saving work is intended to produce so much more than salvation So much more than just a free pass to heaven. It's intended to produce obedience that truly proves that Christ is better than absolutely anything else that the world offers. That following him is better. It seems so contrary to the world, but in it, I promise you, there's true joy, true peace, true change, true growth. What has God laid on your heart today? What has God stirred in you? Who are you called to love, to encourage, to build up? You might start with this room. There's a couple hundred of us in here. What has God called you to put off? Even more so, what has he called you to put on? Remember that our righteousness is not a works-based righteousness at all. The order matters. Zeal for good works and doing these works comes from first responding to what Christ has already done. People zealous for good works are produced only because of what has been completely accomplished by Christ. The ability to even carry out the works only happens because we're sustained by the power of Christ in us. I'm going to give you something that, um, just an example to kind of hit home of something that's been stirring in my heart recently. Something that God is producing in my heart, some zeal for. In Indiana, as of 2015, March 2015, from a report from the Department for Child Services, there was 22,700 kids in the foster care system. That is a lot, and it has grown. There are not enough families who are taking in that many kids. 
And I know there's a whole set of politics and systemic issues that are involved in all of this. But honestly, I'm growing to not really care about that anymore because as I have reflected on this fact, God has been gripping my heart in reminding me that I have been adopted by Christ into his forever family. And God is producing zeal in my heart to see that we might make an impact on this amazing mission field for the glory of God where it is desperately needed in our culture. Now, that's just an example, and I'm not saying that everyone has to be passionate about the same issue in the same way that I am. But what I am saying is that if you are in Christ, God has prepared good works for you so that you may show how glorious he is. He has filled you with his love so that you may in turn love him and love others. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are called to good works. God has prepared them. He has laid them out before us. We're called to go and to preach the gospel with our mouths, but also show that we actually follow Christ in the way we live our lives. Not to be righteous, but because we already are made righteous. And not all these things have to be big things. We're not going to tackle every issue. We just will not on this side of heaven. We're called to be faithful in the little moments, like we've been talking about throughout Titus. And these moments are equally important. Please hear that. Paul was just talking about every mundane situation in life, from operations between older and younger men and women, to home life, to work life, everything in between. These moments happen when you're sitting down with a friend over a cup of coffee and you have an opportunity to apply the gospel in their lives. That's a good work that's been laid out for you. That's a time to take advantage of something that God has placed in your life to be intentional with it, to recognize that that moment is absolutely holy and important and has been prepared for you to show that God is greater. We have been saved and in turn are called to be obedient and reflect on this good news every single day. I was hit with this um, recently, just the importance of the relationships that we have and the opportunity we have to really encourage one another in the gospel. We, we mentioned last week about um, Pastor Kevin Galloway, who passed away in a car wreck, and we had his funeral yesterday, um, and... I was just reminded of that, about how good God is, even in the toughest moments, to produce glory for himself. And yes, we have pain in that, a lot of pain, but I've already seen ripple effects of God working in people's lives because Kevin always told us, hey, these little moments matter. And the coolest thing was he didn't even want us to see him in that. In fact, he may be mad at me for even mentioning him. He wanted us to see Christ in him. 
We have that opportunity every single day to encourage one another, to build one another up, to pray for growth by conversions to Christ and by depth with one another. True growth in the church has nothing to do primarily with numerical growth. Yes, it will grow, but it has to do with the growth of individuals coming to know the gracious and good news of Jesus Christ and responding to that and living a life that glorifies him. Maybe there are some of you today who are here and you are being called to respond to this news If you're in Christ, you're being called to remember and be encouraged by the love that Christ has for you. If you're here and you don't know Jesus yet, Jesus loves you. I promise you that. He wants you to know him. He will fill the only void that you have inside of you that just never can be filled by all the things of this world. He has made a way in his life, death, and resurrection for you to know him. He wants you to repent of your sin and respond in faith to him.